Tonight, we are taking a slightly different shift. So, these have been a series of six talks on finding God in ordinary life. And I'm more or less alternating them between the goal and essence of what it means to be finding God and very practical tools of what we need to do to ourselves and the structure of the spiritual life. So, last week, um, we had a very important topic in terms of order in the spiritual life and structure and discipline. Uh, so if you weren't here last week, you can hear the audio of that and watch all the slides on the parish website. Tonight, we're shifting focus again, not looking at a mechanism so much of the spiritual life of, of this, but what it actually means. So we're going to be talking about what it means to have a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, probably are aware this is a phrase that has as an exact structure a lot of its background in American evangelical phraseology but actually it's been picked up a lot by the Catholic Church and by Pope Francis, Pope Benedict um, as basically just a repackaging of what Catholics have said for a long time um, so got three images here I'm asking the question, what describes your relationship with God? We have three images from three different religions there. Um, and these three different pictures actually sum up a lot. Uh, that's what I want to initially spell out. So first, your Muslim. What is his relationship with God? Well, in Islam, the master slave paradigm is their dominant image. They don't believe you can know God in himself. They don't believe he is your friend. He is your master. The word Islam means submission. Um, and that that's what you are called to do. So this image is not just one thing they do, but kind of sums it up. And obviously a Christian too can pray um, my day every morning kissing the ground and saying I will serve but I wouldn't say it typifies my relationship with the Lord but it's all about so as I said there not personal, not intimate not knowing God in himself different image uh, your Buddhist monk uh, now Buddhism actually covers quite a variety of different views of religion, of God, and that you can be a Buddhist and believe in God, you can be a Buddhist and not believe in God. But Buddhism is about a way to peace. So the image, and certainly when this gets imported into the West in kind of neo-quasi-Buddhist, New Age stuff, it's all very self-serving. What is God to me? God's the thing that gives me peace. God's the thing that gives me tranquility. But God isn't a friend. He isn't someone I'm intimate with. He's just a kind of energy. So Pope Francis, in his um, Apostolic Exaltation Evangelii Gaudium, talks about, critically, those who view God as spiritual energy. That actually that's not what our Christian faith is about. So, actually, you can just touch it twice again. 
So again, in this system, God wouldn't be your friend. This is an image I'm going to use repeatedly. This is St. John uh, kneeling on the breast of the Lord at the Last Supper. This is a friend with a friend. So we're called to have a personal relationship with God in Christ. So we're called to, to know and love Jesus. And I'm going to reiterate this point. These are two elements of any friendship. You can't have a friend unless you know him and love him. We might say, as a specific example, that we as Christians know how God feels, for example, about sin. Because we read in the Gospels, it describes how he responded. It says, Jesus wept. So we know something about him. Know something about his inner nature because he's shown us, he's told us. So, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, this is uh, his words at the Last Supper. I call you friends, said Jesus. Friends. And if you, you, know, you don't need to compare us to many of the other religions of antiquity and even contemporary world to realize this is actually quite a different concept of what religion is about, that he calls us friends. Now let me put a memory test to you. In the rest of the verse, Jesus says, I call you friends because... Anyone remember what the rest of the because is? Why are we his friends? He says, okay, tap it once, not, and again. Because I have made known to you everything I have been told by my Father. So, knowledge. A friend is someone you know. And, uh, just hang on. Uh, so, Jesus has come from heaven to earth, the word of the Father. He has spoken all that the Father has to say. And so, in Christ, we know God. Because he has made God known, we are therefore able to relate to him as a friend to a friend. So throughout the pages of the Old Testament, where gradually, bit by bit, God is making himself known more and more. Now even Moses knew God as a friend knows a friend, face to face. But even then, not in the fullness of when God took flesh in Jesus, so in which there is nothing more he has to say. He's said everything. <coughs> oh, I'm making a slightly different point here. Contrary to relativism. So it, we live in a world today where people say, well, there is no truth. You can't know truth. Well, if there's no truth, that means you don't know Jesus and you don't have intimacy with Jesus. Whereas if you do know truth, then you do have knowledge of Jesus and intimacy with Jesus. I think you deserve a capital J there. <laughs> so, this thing, friendship with the Lord, a personal relationship with the Lord, it makes us different to Islam, makes us different to Buddhism. It also makes us very different to our relativistic modern age, which says... Well, 
you have your God, I have my God, there isn't any truth, or even, you know, relativistic Christians who say, you have your Jesus, I have my Jesus, what's Jesus to you? Well, actually, what Jesus is in himself is what is the reality. And he has, we have to know him as he is to have a friendship. Knowledge, you know a friend. So as he said to himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay. Oops, if you slide back there. Okay, ah, I made a slightly different point here. I was sh- I'm sure when I put this image up earlier, there was at least one person here who said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of religious imagery does look mushy and sentimental. But there is actually a theological reason behind that, and it is because it is personal. If he is a friend, well, actually, friendship is a kind of mushy thing. So it's only to be expected that any attempt to convey that of our faith in religious artwork is going to look very emotional. Um, I think it's very emotional. Well, this is... Yeah. This is the image I grew up with. Yeah. Um, but I can remember uh, our now retired bishop, I had a big image of that behind the wall, in, uh, framed um, on my wall in the seminary. Um, and I can remember the bishop leaving my room saying, that's a disgusting, a sickly, sickly image. <laughs> anyway, but if he, if he is personal to us, if he is a friend... Actually, he's going to look a bit mushy and sentimental. Now, you may remember, some of you who heard my talk on the New Evangelization series that I did last year, um, I asked this question then. What does it mean to be a Christian? And in particular, what does Pope Francis say? What does it mean to be a Christian? Anyone remember (coughs) the answer according to him? Well, that's not what he points to. That would be a kind of secondary thing that happens as a consequence. He says to be a Christian is to meet Christ, to encounter Christ. So if you touch again and let's look at the quotation. He says, I never tire of repeating those words of Pope Benedict, which take us to the very heart of the gospel. Being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice, or a lofty idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, which gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. And this actually is a a theme, um, if you read his writings when he was a cardinal, um, the encounter with Christ again and again and again is, is something he comes back to. So he's quoting Pope Benedict before him, but it's very much his own theme. So one of the things I'm going to kind of spell out now is, well, in this personal relationship with the Lord, this friendship with the Lord, how do we encounter him? And not just, he's not just meaning meeting him once, but again and again, the finding God in every day of life, how do we encounter him repeatedly? Ah, back a step. Um... So we know Pope Francis is very big on the church's duty to the poor. Um, but his point is that 
the essence of Christianity isn't about example, isn't about giving to the poor, but is about encountering Christ. Now, if you encounter Christ, truly, that will make you Christ-like. It will change the way you relate to the poor. And you can't not relate to the poor differently if you have authentically met Christ. Um, But the, the thing that is prior is not an ethical decision, but an encounter with a person. So, to ask the question, a friendship, a personal relationship with Jesus, what is that like? What does it look like? What does it consist of? So, one thing it doesn't consist of, it's not like having an imaginary friend. Yeah, that... um, one of my university friends used to get really spooked out when I would talk about praying because he would imagine me talking to somebody who's not really there, uh, an imaginary friend. Well, that's not what we mean. Maybe he's not a friend I see the way I see other friends, but he's not just a figment of my imagination. This is a different image of the Sacred Heart. But again, asking the question, what does this relationship consist of? What constitutes it? So I'm going to point to three things. Knowing him, well, I've already said a bit about that. Loving him and encountering him. So as I said, if you can't have a friendship with someone you don't know. So you have to get to know him. If he is a friend, well, again, that love is the essence of a friendship. Um, and a friend you never meet, that you never encounter, again, it's not a friendship. Now, to pick up uh, on another theme of Pope Francis, he talks a lot about the importance of traditional piety, as he puts it, as expressing this personal relationship. So, in our faith, what embodies a relationship with the Lord. Well, he says, look to traditional piety. Look to the piety of the poor and the uneducated and the unsophisticated. And he says, there actually you will see what this personal relationship looks like. So he says, genuine forms, as in genuine forms of popular religiosity, are incarnate bodily since they are born of the incarnation of Christian faith in popular culture. For this reason, they entail a personal relationship, not with vague spiritual energies or powers, but with God, with Christ, with Mary and the saints. These devotions are fleshy. They have a faith, a face. So does he look sickly? Well, he has a face. And if it doesn't become incarnate, then it isn't authentic. So here I've listed some examples of traditional piety. Um, So the Sacred Heart being perhaps the most famous. Other things, devotion to the sacred wounds. Um, Our Lord had five wounds. Well, this is another traditional piety. Meditation on his sacred humanity. So contemplating the Gospels, the mysteries of the Rosary. These are turning to um, his sacred humanity. His humanity 
taking flesh, showing us what he's like, that's what we relate with, relate to. And Pope Francis, you may be aware, um, one of the things he's repeatedly done at his general audiences is give out gospel booklets to people. That you have to meet Christ, know Christ, um, as he's recorded in the gospels. It's not just some imaginary Christ or what I think he might be like or what I'd like him to be like or what I imagine, you know. Actually, he's has shown himself what he's like. It's recorded for us. So reading the scriptures is one very direct form of piety that this personal relationship consists in. I want to spend a, a little longer on the sacred heart. The sacred heart is a pivotal example, it's not the only one, of what <coughs> in traditional piety this personal relationship looks like. So to break this down into two parts, you know, in a relationship there's two directions. There's how you relate to that person and how that person relates to you. Well, let's think first about how God relates to us and how that is embodied, how that's seen in the devotion of the Sacred Heart. So God in human form, if we ask the question, how, what does God feel towards us? And we read the Gospels and the humanity of Christ, see how he interacts with people. Can anyone think? Well, oh. oh, well. <laughs> I was hoping to have a moment's reflection there. But anyway, um, three things I've got out. Jesus wept, he had compassion, he looked at him and loved him. So when Jesus approached Jerusalem shortly before his death, he saw Jerusalem indifferent to the visitation of the Lord, and he wept. Other times, the Gospels record repeatedly, he had compassion. He saw the crowds. He saw them harassed and dejected. He saw the lost. Did he look at them, and are we primarily hearing him getting angry? Well, no, as I preached a couple of weeks ago, we only once really hear him get angry in the Gospels, but many times. We hear him have compassion. And then when the rich young man came to him, um, the man who had kept his com the commandments since his youth, Jesus looked at him and loved him. So we look at the sacred heart and it embodies for us how God relates to us. That this heart is a kind of imagery summing up his relationship to us. Burning for us. With compassion, with love. And also, if you know the sacred heart devotion, with, uh, with sorrow for our sins. So the, the, the thorns around this heart, the wound in the heart, are our sins, our rejection of his love. So, a relationship. Firstly, his relationship to us. Then our relationship to him. Now this is different in one level, in that God is utterly consistent in how he relates to me. He's always loving me, always forgiving me, always taking care of me. 
Whereas I have good days and bad days. I have times when I'm focused on him, times when I'm loving him, times when I'm full of fervor. Other times when my mind's elsewhere, when I forget him, when I'm selfish, when I'm greedy, when I'm all kinds of other things that, although his relationship to me is utterly constant, mine to him is very variable. So, on one level, this notion of a personal relationship needs a slight clarification in that it's not a relationship like other relationships, and it, from his angle, he's utterly faithful and reliable. But in the Sacred Heart devotion, our relationship to the Lord in the living out of that devotion consists of acts of reparation by which I offer to the Lord little acts of love, little acts of sorrow. So I, like during Lent, I give something up, I go without something and I offer it as an act of reparation to his wounded heart. I do things also as little acts of love, returning his love. Um, what else have I got? Um, acts of thanksgiving, supplication. Um, so the Sacred Heart devotion is one concrete form of what this thing, a personal relationship, a friendship with the Lord, looks like. Okay, actually, if you touch twice now, because I've said what the next two slides say. Okay. Okay, let's take a different angle now. And consider the question, where do we encounter the Lord? So we do encounter him. That's what a friendship with him has to involve. But where do we encounter him? The Mass. The Mass? The Eucharist. The Eucharist. In your prayers, yes. Um, so first thing in the morning, last thing at night. The charitable acts. Be nice to people during the day. Right. The charitable acts. What you do to the least of my brothers, you do to me. So yeah. Is it the blessed sacrament? Right. Yes. Yes. Actually, I don't think I've got that up there. But which is <laughs> a pretty major miss. We meet the Lord on the cross. Um, and often he comes as a surprise to us in the crosses of life. We think, oh, where's the Lord gone? But actually, he is meeting us there. Anything else? Kind of confession. different things. Uh, confession, and we could say any one of the seven sacraments. Mm -hmm. So, yes? yes. Anything would teach us about that? Teaching, yes. Tell us right, right, right. Um, I always find them there at my wit's end when I'm really yeah. stressed out and relieved. And all of a right. sudden I think, well, Jesus is there for me. Right. <laughs> which, means, which means that when the cross comes, you are actually recognising Jesus oh, there. Yeah. Which is good, because it's, <laughs> it's easy for us, for that to be the moment when we fail to meet the Lord. That when everything goes nice, um, you know, that there's, I remember reading a critique on the internet just recently, um, of how when people will typically say something goes nice to them, people say, oh, he's a good God. Um, well, actually, he's a good God when he gives me the cross as well, because mm -hmm. I need the cross. Um, otherwise, I don't grow, I don't come closer to him. Um, he's not only good when easy things happen. 
that's where we encounter him, when we realize that that cross is the need that he knows we need, that we yeah. don't necessarily need. Yeah, so that the suffering in itself isn't meeting Christ. It's meeting him and seeing that he is, or he, he can be if I find him here within this thing. So that it becomes not just a piece of physical suffering, but something I embrace, I accept, I offer, and live with him. Okay. What have I forgotten? Oh, okay, this is a step backward. Um, but just the Synod of Bishops on the Evangelization spoke about the fact that when we talk about evangelization, the entire goal of it is to create the possibility of this encounter, encountering Jesus. So all kinds of different things we look at in the life of the church in which we are meeting Jesus, making it possible to meet Jesus, actually this is all part of what evangelization is about. So, a few of us said that, where do we encounter Jesus? We encounter him praying. So as I quoted a couple of weeks ago, uh, in particular mental prayer, that intimacy with prayer that isn't just filled with set prayers. Um, mental prayer is nothing else than an intimate friendship, a frequent heart-to-heart conversation with him by whom we know ourselves to be loved, says Teresa of Avila. you said this as well. Um, we encounter the Lord in Holy Communion and Adoration. And just to make a point that I've made to some of you before, um, the Synod of Bishops on the New Evangelization two years ago um, spoke a lot about the experience of the youth and of youth movements um, and what are called the new movements in the church. And of two things in particular, um, sacramentally, that have been experienced in a revived and new form in these youth movements, in these youth you, gatherings of youth so one is adoration of the Lord in the Eucharist that young people today grow up in a world in which God is utterly absent and to be somewhere where the Lord is physically present as he is in Holy Communion is a focus is a, a localization of his presence that the experience of these youth movements is um that we can witness young people responding to. And the other is a, a rediscovery of confession. So if you go to events like Youth 2000, World Youth Day, you will see young people queuing and queuing for confession. When I've been now as a priest, um, one of the biggest jobs is hearing the confessions. Um, and in the hearing of them, to realise just how much this is for so many, an encounter, a renewed encounter with the Lord. And obviously these two things are very old-fashioned things as well, but they are things that have been returned to in a, in a new form and a new focus. So at the Synod of Bishops, um, they spoke about confession as being the primary sacrament of the new evangelization. That the kind of trigger point in which somebody is meeting the Lord in a new specific 
renewed way is typically in confession. Um, so that the new evangelization isn't just about bringing the gospel to those that have never heard him before, but about bringing him in a renewed way to those that have only heard of him in a limited fashion or um, abstract fashion. But at the Synod of Bishops, they spoke about the, the experience, um, particularly in youth movements, of confession as being the primary sacrament of the new evangelization because it's an encounter with the Lord. Tap it twice, because it's... Okay, and again. And again. <laughs> Just to point out, to think of confession as an encounter with the Lord to think of confession as part of my personal relationship with him, for many people means we need to think differently about our sins. Because depending on how you were raised, if you were raised Catholic, it's possible to think of sin as an act of failing to be perfect, that it's a lack of my self-achievement, which is a very me-focused thing about sin that it's my failure. Um, or to think of sin primarily in terms of guilt, that sin is something I feel lousy about, sin is something that makes me feel bad. Whereas if sin and forgiveness is about meeting the Lord, encountering the Lord, being forgiven by the Lord, then actually the primary thing sin is about is about a break and a healing of my personal relationship with the Lord. That the question of sin, therefore, is about a personal offence to the Lord, a personal offence to my divine friend. It's like a father writing to your best friend. Yep. There's nothing you feel when you do that. Mm-hmm. More on there. Yep. 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 But it's also learning from it and moving forward, isn't it? It gives you that opportunity um, to sort of reflect on it and, and then move forward. Mm-hmm. That, that's and, and, and in moving forward, you're stepping nearer to Christ all the time. It should be. Yes, it should be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. And again, because I think I said that already, and again. <coughs> Okay, I'm approaching the end now, uh, and a very important thing, someone, I don't remember who said earlier, meeting Christ um, in my neighbour. So meeting Christ in the needy, uh, as the Lord said, I was hungry and you fed me, you fed me, not you fed somebody in need, you fed me, but am I meeting Christ in the Lord? And I said at the bottom here that this is a test of whether our friendship with Jesus is self-serving, whether our friendship with Jesus is false. So if in my friendship with Jesus, actually I'm not changing in my attitude towards those who are in need, if in my friendship with Jesus I'm not changing in my attitude to anybody, then actually my relationship with the Lord isn't really a relationship with him. It's with some partial aspect of him. Because he is there in the needy. And if I'm not seeing him there, if I'm not encountering him there, then that's a a sign that there's something deeply faulty in this personal relationship. 
When we look at pictures of the needy, the sort of image we have, but the needy can be somebody in your own family yep. or somebody yeah, near indeed. to you, and their needs may not be poverty as mm -hmm. such. Their needs may be other things that, that we should be trying to support. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't be doing it, but, yeah. but there are other, other things as well. Yes, indeed, indeed. Just to keep a spiritual gloss on this, um, it's possible to help somebody in need in a purely humanistic way, which is good, but it's not the same thing as finding Christ there, as seeing in this person someone who has that same dignity of being made in the image of God, that same dignity of being called to be a son in the sun, uh, and therefore seeing Jesus there. Jim, it's funny when you say things like this. The countless um, adverts that come on the television, you know, that this child may not see another day, and mm -hmm. this sort of thing, would you please give mm -hmm. two pounds or whatever? Mm -hmm. And they come on all the time. And I sit there and think, well, obviously they need money. Mm. The other half of me is thinking, how many of these clowns are dealing with these charities? And it's not going anywhere near the kids. And I don't do it. Mm. And I feel dreadful about it. And I, I really have to sort of push it back there. They're all asking for money. Mm. You, you, you want to know that it would go directly there, but because you don't, and you hear so many things about fraud. Fraud. I don't do it that way. Yeah. Well, I think that's why we just need to choose which charities mm -hmm. we fund, yeah. and if we tr fund ones we know, yeah. and we can see where the money's going, mm -hmm. then that's not a question. Mm -hmm. I usually Doesn't say, I let the English do that, and I, I support Catholic charities. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because they're very generous, you know, they're yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me draw that together in a summary. Where do we encounter well, as we said, in prayer, in sacraments, in the Bible, so reading the Bible, the teaching of the church, how do I learn about the Lord? Well, actually, the Lord didn't write a book, he didn't write the Bible, he did found the church to pass on everything he said. And as we've said, in love of my neighbour. So in all of these, I have this friendship with this Lord, this encounter with him, um, and these are the places I meet. And that, back to that image of a friendship, you can't have a friend if you don't meet them. And if you are meeting them, you can have a friendship. So seeing where he is that I may meet him. Um, last image, or last question. Joy. So back again, a, a repeated theme of Pope Francis. Um, joy. Joy, so I said my love of the needy, my love of the neighbour is a test of my relationship with the Lord. Pope Francis points to joy in the believer as being a test as well. So, as a fruit of that encounter, you meet your beloved and you just spontaneously feel joy. You don't need to be told to feel joy. You don't need to think, oh, I'm going to feel happy now. It happens spontaneously. 
Two examples here. Um, the fervent joy of the sinner who knows he is forgiven. So if you know your evangelical Christian stereotype, the evangelical knows he sinned and he feels happy. Why? Because he knows he's forgiven. And if you don't know you've sinned, you can't know you're forgiven. Um, so there's the joy of the sinner who knows he's forgiven. And similarly, Pope Francis talks about the joy-filled hope of the abandoned who finally know somebody cares about them. So he says, joy fills the hearts and lives of those who encounter Jesus. And he repeatedly comes to this image. He says, the apostles never forgot the moment when Jesus touched their hearts. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. So the gospel... John records the specific time when he met the Lord by the lakeside of Galilee. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. That, that kind of a, an immediacy and encounter, it made that kind of a joy on him that he's able, all those years later, to say it was four o'clock in the afternoon. I wonder how many people who go, go to church don't have that joy anymore. Mm, don't look as if it's that joy in them, you know. But, you know, when I get communion, I am so happy. Yes, right. I used to walk about smiling, and everybody used to be very soft, and I used to get off it up, and it really seriously. To me, it was just, wow. And I still find it hard, and I still walk away grinning. Yeah. People do show their joy in different ways, don't they? So... And I think we'd also have to say there's different kinds of joy. There's a, a you know, a, a quiet joy. There can be a loud joy. So, so this is my final slide here. Thinking about what describes your relationship with the Lord. Is he a source of peace to you? Well, he should be, but that isn't what he's about. Is he your master and you his slave? Well, that's kind of within our faith but actually the image of the slave is actually what we are told in the New Testament we are set free from the Christian image he, we relate to him in a personal relationship a friendship with someone you know, someone you love I think with us I mean he's our father so he's standard so you respect your father. And you're not your father's slave. You lose your gold. But you're not your father's slave and you know you're upset him.